You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hi, I'm Peterson Toscano, and this is Bubble and Squeak, a podcast with uncanny sounds, funny interludes, and stories most weird and true. Okay, here's season three, episode six. Our show today comes in three parts. Part one, writer Wendy Sanford reveals the origins of her memoir about friendship across race and class. Part two, Wendy reads from her book, These Walls Between Us. And part three, a sound slice from Northern London. I recently featured Wendy Sanford here on Bubble and Squeak. She was one of the original authors of the groundbreaking women's sexuality and health book, Our Bodies Ourselves. Through that writing process and the many subsequent updates to the book, Wendy learned how to listen deeply to people with experiences different from her own. Wendy has the ability to speak honestly about her faults and failures. She takes responsibility without evoking shame. I would have to go back and say the motivation for writing the memoir that I just published started way back when those groups of women of color told our collective that we couldn't say we and mean all women, that there were there was huge diversity out there. Race matters. Race is a construct that was created by white people to claim dominance. On the other hand, because of how it's structured into our society and how oppression is structured in, race does matter. So I had to look, relook at my life with that new understanding. And so it really started many years ago, that relooking at my life. And Polly and I went to a lot of anti-racism workshops. And then the whole concept of whiteness started to come into the conversation. And we understood that our race mattered. <laughs> That being white brought us so many assumptions and so many privileges. I had an evolving friendship with an African-American woman named Mary Norman, who I met when she came at 15 years old to be a mother's helper for my mother, a domestic worker, basically did everything to help us, my family, have a good vacation. Mary and I became friends against a lot of obstacles, really, mostly within me and within the structure of how she was in my family's house. I became fascinated with her relationship with my parents and my relationship with my parents. And were she and I sisters or was that something you couldn't even say? After we'd been friends for, well, 20 years maybe, she suggested that we write a book together. That's what got me started writing a book about my family, was Mary saying, we should write a book together. No one would believe that we're friends, given how we started. I took her up on that over the next 30 years of working on the book. Well, number one, it didn't come out as a book we both wrote. And that was a long time figuring out. It's a whole long, fascinating story, fascinating to me, about how it became more and more our book and how Mary is, we both understand now that she co-created the book, even though I was writing the words. 
What helped a lot at the end was texting. It's so amazing that a technological change could open the way to a really significant shift in this, the, in this memoir that I was working on of our friendship. So I wrote my way deeply into the family relationships using the lenses that I found in particularly in African-American sociologists and novelists to understand better what had been going on in my family with Mary in particular. The thing I could offer was to be incredibly honest about all that I had to learn in order to be a decent friend to Mary, all I had to unlearn in order to be a decent friend to Mary. This goes back to my work with our bodies ourselves. I wrote about sex. Well, I certainly didn't learn how to do that in my family. Second wave feminists in my group uh, felt like we just needed to speak more honestly and to talk about orgasm and the clitoris and all these things that we'd never even said out loud before. And I became convinced that transparency, detailed accuracy and honesty were the way to best way to express myself as I tackled my family and the racism that was part of how white people are born and bred. I also spoke very, very honestly about it. My family members are not as happy about the book as anybody else I've spoken with who's read it. And I understand that. My sibling feels that I'm saying that our father was racist. Well, I kind of am. But I'm also saying that I am. That that's how we're trained. It's in, our, it's in the air. I can understand that my, my brother and my son also are not wild about the book. And that's been sad for me but understandable. I just felt like I had to tell the truth. I had to tell the truth. In this scene, Mary and I are in our 60s already. We're in her living room. Mary has been reading aloud to me from a book called Like One of the Family, which is a novel by Alice Childress. The book features a 1950s black domestic worker named Mildred and her sardonic and pointed monologues about the white woman she works for. The employer claims to friends that Mildred is like one of the family, but makes her eat in the kitchen. This reading that Mary's doing is so relevant to our 65-year friendship because we met when Mary took a summer job as a domestic worker in my family. She was 15 and I was 12. Smiling broadly now, Mary flipped to the front of the book and ran her finger down the list of chapter titles like she meant to read more soon. Like one of the family, my mother had always said about Mary. Wrong, I thought. Wrong. Wrong. But a conviction began to gather inside me, like a spasm forming, a sneeze or cough I couldn't swallow or squelch. Mary truly was one of our family. I couldn't repress the thought. At the lake house, hadn't Mary called herself the daughter who didn't leave home? 
at the correction center, hadn't she threatened the insulting officer with a retaliation from her white mother in Princeton? Mary seemed to love and fear my mother and father in many of the ways I did. We suffered over their drinking, each in our own way, like siblings in an alcoholic family. Don't you think, I began, I realized the wrongness in what I was about to say, felt the words coming on anyway. I shifted to the edge of the chair as if the claim headed out through my lips wouldn't allow me to lean back and make myself at home in her living room. In our case, I, I mean, I know what Mildred was saying in the book, but in our case, don't you think, in a way, I blushed hotly. You really did become one of the family, didn't you? Mary thought for a long time, holding the book in front of her as if testing its weight. Finally, she said soberly, It's a double-edged thing, Wendy. You are one of the family, and then again, you aren't. When your mother died, it was the same for me as if I'd lost my own mother. None of you seem to realize that. Not your father, or Kopi, or you. You were all too busy. Her reproach devastated me. I asked you to sit up in front with us at the funeral. That was my way of showing that I knew you had lost a mother too, I said. Today, in 2020, I hear this self-justifying whine and think of Robin D'Angelo's work on white fragility. D'Angelo's guidance to white people is this. When a person of color gives you feedback that you have done something hurtful or harmful, do not try to explain your good intentions. Say, thank you. If you ever doubted that explanations of good intention are a problem, even a further microaggression, listen to Mary's guarded response when I harked back to seating her in the front of the church. It was very nice of you, Mary said to me, formal as the furniture, and I appreciated it. Then she went on, your father probably didn't even think I should be in the church. Not that he meant it meanly. He was just a man of his time is all. You weren't comfortable sitting up there with the rest of us, I asked. I wasn't, she said. Still, she held the book between us, face utterly serious. Finally, Mary's message landed. Not one of us had treated her like one of the family. As if to mark the seriousness of this revelation, we sat in silence together for some time. Upstairs in Mary's guest room, despair seized me. Despite all the books by black writers I had claimed to learn from, I blurted out the same old thing to Mary, that she was like one of the family. Her energetic reading of Mildred's spirited critiques had taken us forward, but my humbling blurt had pushed us back. In the end, I clung to the step forward. Thanks to Alice Childress's forthright character, Mildred, Mary had told me a new truth. I bungled when mom died, and now Mary had told me how this hurt her. A door, long barricaded shut by the inequalities that divide us, cracked ajar. Mary and I might deepen our relationship as family to each other, but not through nostalgia. 
only through sharing and for my part being ready to listen to more of the truth. Let me set the scene for you. I'm in Hackney, England. It's early December and bone-chilling cold. The fog has frosted on trees, fences, and bicycles. It looks like winter fairies have delicately encrusted everything in a frosty lace. I'm by a small river with long, low houseboats lined up on the one side. Every day or two, a supply boat comes by, selling wood and other basic supplies for the boat owners. Bubble and Squeak is written and produced by me, Peter Santoscano. I mostly make this show for me and my friend Shirley, who is learning how to be honest without shame. Learn more about Wendy Sanford and her memoir, The Walls Between Us. Visit wendysanford.com. That's wendysanford.com. The Bubble and Squeak theme song is Worthless by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. To find more great music and new podcasts, visit rockcandyrecordings.com. Feel free to say hi to me on Twitter, um, <clears throat> X, at p 2 the letter P, the number two, S-O-N. Or better yet, just say hi as you see me walking around Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Oh, and thanks for listening. For more shows like this one, visit rockcandyrecordings.com.